Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every person who accepts circumcision that such a person is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You, who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The word of the Lord. So we are in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this passage that Nicole just read, uh, the beginning of chapter 5 here, I would say this is probably the climax of the whole letter. If I were going to pick one verse uh, as the key verse um, for the whole letter of Galatians, I would probably pick the first verse of this passage, for freedom Christ to set you free. For Paul, um, the, the very essence, the very nature of the gospel can be summed up in that one word, freedom. Freedom. Now, I don't think it would be any stretch to say that if you were to ask most people in our society to define Christianity, to describe Christianity, most people would probably not use the word freedom. Uh, that is not the first word that would pop to mind when people are describing the gospel. In fact, it would be easy to think of Christianity just like we think of any other religion. It's a, a, a list of do's and don'ts, uh, a list of rules, a list of regulations and behaviors, things that we must do in order to be accepted by God. Things that look more like restricting freedom than enhancing freedom. And that's actually one of the major tension points in our culture with Christianity because when you look at modern Western society, and especially American society, one of our most cherished values, in fact, maybe our most cherished value is this value of freedom. But it's a particular way of defining freedom. How do we say it? Everybody should be free to live however they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Have you ever said that yourself? Everybody should be free to live however they want, as long as they don't hurt someone else. Freedom is one of our most cherished values. Now, that um, is what we would probably call a, a cultural narrative. Okay, what's a cultural narrative? A cultural narrative is any baseline belief or view of life that is so woven into our mindset that we don't even question it. Okay, a cultural narrative is any belief that feels so self-evident to us that it's actually invisible to us as a belief. We, we don't even notice it. We don't even question it. It's like a slogan or a saying that whenever you hear it, as soon as you hear it, you're like, well, duh, everybody knows that. A cultural narrative. So, for instance, some of our other cultural narratives that we have would be things like, just be yourself. Or as we say nowadays, you do you. <laughs> or another one would be, follow your heart. 
cultural narratives. Another one, very uh, popular one, is no one has the right to tell anyone else what's right or wrong. Everyone else has to decide that for themselves. These are cultural narratives, baseline beliefs that are just woven into our mindset. We don't even question them. They don't even appear to us as beliefs. They feel so self-evident. Now, here's the thing. Every culture has its own narratives. But when you look at modern Western society, one of the things you notice is that so many, in fact, maybe all of our most prized narratives actually revolve around this idea of personal individual freedom, right? Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It's up to you to decide who to be and what to do. No one else has the right to tell you that. You have to determine that for yourself. Freedom. So that when we look at Christianity, unless we have a really good understanding of what the gospel actually is, it would be easy to look at Christianity and say, oh, that's going to restrict my freedom. That's going to inhibit my freedom. Now, here's why this is so crucial. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to Christians. The Galatians are Christians. That means that in writing this letter, Paul is reminding us that it's possible, in fact, very likely, for Christians to forget the gospel and therefore for Christians to fail to live out of the full freedom that God intends for us through the gospel. So Christians need to hear Paul's message in Galatians. But if that's true, okay, if Christians... um, forget the gospel and need to hear and be reminded of the message of the gospel, how much more true if you're not a Christian? Say you've rejected Christianity or don't believe it. How do you know that what you've rejected actually was the gospel to begin with? If it's possible for Christians to misunderstand the gospel, how do you know that what you've rejected, that that you've actually succeeded to understand what the gospel really is? This passage helps you to find out. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear this passage so that you can be sure that you're living out of the freedom that God has intended for you. If you're not a Christian or if you're exploring faith in Christ here this morning, you need to hear this passage also so that you can know what it is you're rejecting or what it is you're actually embracing if you decide to embrace it. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, gospel freedom. And we want to ask three questions. What is it? How do we miss it, and how can we experience it? Gospel freedom, what is it? How do we miss it, and how can we actually experience it? Okay? So first, what is it? What is this gospel freedom Paul is talking about? If you look at verse 1, it's very interesting the way he says it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So that word freedom appears twice. In other words, Paul's talking about a specific kind of freedom here. In other words, if he said, you know, Jesus set you free in order to set you free, that's not worth saying. It's a specific kind of freedom. So what kind of freedom is Paul talking about here? Well, he goes on to get more specific with us. Right after that, he says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's continuing by saying, well, freedom, the freedom I'm talking about, gospel freedom is freedom from slavery, but slavery to what? Well, we keep going, he gets very specific in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, here, Paul is getting very explicit, and he's naming the thing that he's been warning the Galatians about in this whole letter. For the first time, he actually names it. He's been talking about it the whole letter, but here he actually names the thing that he's so worried about that he's been warning them about. What's been happening here? In this situation, in this church, uh, 
what had happened was there was some teachers that had come into the church and they were actually preaching a different gospel than the gospel that Paul was preaching. And the really dangerous thing about the gospel that these teachers were preaching was not that it was the exact opposite of the gospel that Paul preached. The danger was that it was so close. It looked so similar that it was very difficult to tell the difference between the two things. Because these teachers were not coming in and saying, look, you don't need Jesus to be saved. That's crazy. You don't need Jesus. They were not saying that. They were not denying Jesus. They were adding to Jesus. So instead, what they were saying was this. Look, you need faith in Jesus to be saved. You cannot be saved without faith in Jesus, but there's something else you need as well. You need to get circumcised. Unless you get circumcised, you cannot be saved. So this is very interesting. You know, the false teachers were saying, unless you get circumcised, Christ is no advantage to you. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you do get circumcised, Christ is of no advantage to you. Now, what's going on with that? The key is to understand that when Paul talks about circumcision here, he's not just talking about the ritual of circumcision. He's actually talking about adopting an operating principle for your whole life. What do I mean by that? Notice that as soon as Paul mentions circumcision, he immediately says in verse 3 that every person who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, what he's talking about is all of the commandments and the regulations that God gave the Israelites through Moses in the Old Testament. So that's not just moral laws, but ceremonial laws and sacrificial laws and dietary laws, all these different laws that God gave the Israelites. And Paul is saying, hundreds of laws, if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep every single one of those laws, okay? Now, what is the point of keeping the law? This is the important part. What's the goal, the the whole point of keeping the law? Paul tells us in verse 4, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And that's where it is right there. The goal, the whole point of keeping the law is to be justified. Now, that's a big 10 cent biblical theological word, justification. But what does that actually mean? Paul talks about justification over and over again in his letter to the Galatians. But what does justification mean? Because he says, that's what we're all aiming for. What is it? The simplest one word definition of justification is this. Justification is status. And I think as soon as I say that, we all have like an instinctive impulse. We know what that means because that almost immediately communicates a whole world of of hopes and fears, status. We're all looking for that. So just to flesh that out a little bit, however, uh, one one way of thinking about it is this. There's a a philosopher named Alain de Baton. He's um, not a Christian. In fact, he's an atheist. He's written a, a number of popular books, and one of his books is called Status Anxiety. And in the very first chapter of the books, uh, here's what he says. He says, we human beings... We are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value. We are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value, as a result of which affliction we allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive. Captive, he says. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. Now, here's what he's saying. You know, if somebody criticizes you or they disrespect you or they ignore you, what happens? We're crushed or we're heartbroken or we're furious because we're held captive to what others think. 
Or on the opposite end of that, if somebody notices you or compliments you or praises you, you know, what happens to you? You feel like you're on top of the world. You know, you're like, you're like Julie Andrews in that opening scene to Sound of Music. The hills are alive. You know, you're twirling in the sunlight because somebody noticed you. Somebody paid attention to you. Somebody complimented you. Our status is held captive to the appraisals of others. Justification is status. Justification is a resounding yes to our soul's deepest question. Do I matter? We're all asking that question, and we all are yearning to hear the answer that says, yes, you matter. That's justification. Now, when Paul talks about justification, he's not just talking about the approval of other people. He's talking about the approval of God, the love of God, the acceptance of God, you know, um, an eternal, undying affirmation to your soul's deepest question, the, the love of God that says you matter. Friends, that is what each and every one of us is looking for, that's what each and every one of us is longing for. And here's the crucial point. It's what every single one of us is working our tails off for. It's what we're performing for. Every single one of us. We're performing for that. Or to put it theologically, to put it the way Paul puts it here, we're seeking to be justified by the law. To be justified by the law means that you are seeking your status on the basis of performance. That is an operating principle for your whole life. And that's why Paul says that if you accept circumcision, he says, you're embracing this operating principle of uh, performance-based status, all right? Now, once you understand that, you realize that it doesn't have to be circumcision. Circumcision is just one example among many of this operating principle. So for instance, what would an example of that operating principle be in our modern-day society? Not circumcision, circumcision you know, unless you're Jewish, that doesn't really mean anything in our world beyond a medical procedure. You know, what would a modern-day example be? I'll tell you, your resume. That's a great modern-day example of circumcision. Because what is a resume? It's your performance record, right? So, for instance, you go to a job interview, and what are you looking for? The status of that title. That, you know, whatever title, job title it is you're looking for. And you go to the interview, and you sit down, and the person interviewing you says, why should I give you this job instead of the dozens of other people that are sitting out there in the waiting room? Answer, you break out your resume. Here's why I'm qualified. Here's why I'm worthy. Here's why you should hire me instead of all those other people waiting out there because of my performance record. You turn in your resume. It's the resume system, okay? If you want the status, you've got to turn in a great performance, so Paul is saying that if you adopt that as your operating principle for life, then you're in slavery. You're not free. Why? Because he says it obligates you to be perfect in order to get the status that you seek. Um, as he says, every person who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, many people might say, look, you know, no one is perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not claiming to be perfect. But I know in my heart of hearts I'm a good person. And I'm trying as hard as I can to be the best person that I can. And God doesn't expect me to be perfect. All God wants is that we're trying hard to be a good person. That's what counts. Not that we're perfect, but that we're good enough. So for instance, I think in every person, there's, we have a scale in our minds or a spectrum. And on one end of the scale or the spectrum is what we could call perfect badness. Okay, When we would put somebody like Hitler on that end of the scale. 
But then, you know, somebody that no matter what, there's no way that God would ever accept or forgive that person for what they did. Perfect badness. But on the other end of the scale, there's what we would think of as perfect goodness. And, and we know, well, of course, nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever lived a life of perfect goodness. But, but here's the thing. We think that as long as I'm somewhere on that scale, as long as I'm somewhere maybe, maybe closer to the side of goodness than I am to the side of badness, then, you know, yeah, I believe in God's grace, but nobody's perfect. And, and God's grace takes me most of the way. But, you know, as long as I'm on the scale somewhere, you know what that is? That's like, so imagine you say, you know, let's not even give ourselves too much credit. And we say, you know, I believe in God's grace, but nobody's perfect, and God forgives me. So let's say that salvation is 90% God's grace, and, but 10% my goodness. I'm somewhere on the scale. Or let's, like, let's not even give ourselves that much credit. Let's say salvation is 99.9% God's grace and just 0.01% my goodness. Do you know what you've just done? You know how a door works. Imagine a big, heavy oak door, a door that weighs, say, I don't know, 200 pounds. The thing's massive. How does the door actually operate? On a hinge. What's a hinge? It weighs a few ounces. Compared to the door, it's nothing. But unless the hinge is operating properly, the whole thing collapses. Everything depends on the hinge, no matter how small it is. When Paul says, if you accept circumcision, in other words, if you embrace the resume system, the operating principle of performance-based status, if you do that, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. When he says that, he's saying that our goodness, our performance is so flimsy and so lightweight that it can't possibly justify ourselves before a holy, infinite God. That means that either Jesus is everything or Jesus is nothing, but there's no in-between. Either, either grace is everything or grace is nothing. Either Jesus is the door and the hinge on which the door turns or Jesus is nothing. But there is no in-between those two things. Gospel freedom means that when you accept Jesus as both the door and the hinge on which your justification turns, that you are now freed from the impossible burden of having to be the hinge yourself. You're freed from having to be somewhere on the scale, right? You can get off the scale. You can get off the performance treadmill. You can embrace a new operating principle, not performance-based status, but grace-based status. Those are two mutually opposite things, and it's only one or the other, either performance-based status, which is slavery, or grace-based status, which Paul says is freedom. That's what gospel freedom is, Okay? And that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we have to see, how do we miss it? How do we miss this freedom that the gospel offers us? In other words, how do we fail to enjoy the freedom that, the, of the gospel? What does that mean? You know, one of the fascinating things about this passage is that Paul is showing us here there's actually more than one way to miss this freedom. So, for instance, we've just seen that gospel freedom is freedom from the burden or slavery of justifying yourself before God on the basis of your own goodness or your own performance, okay? So, in other words, it sounds like Paul is mostly talking to religious people, and he's warning them against legalistic rule-keeping, right? Like, be a good person, 
be holy, be obedient, be moral, and then if you do a good enough job with that, then God will love you and accept you. He's warning them against legalistic rule-keeping as a means of salvation, and that's right. He is saying that, but that's not all that he's saying. Because if it were, then what would this passage have to say to the literally millions of people in our society that wouldn't describe themselves as religious at all? The answer is it has everything to say to them. Remember at the beginning, we were talking about cultural narratives and the idea that freedom, this idea of freedom, lies at the heart of most, if not all, of our primary cultural narratives that we have in our society. So, for instance, when we think about freedom in our culture, especially in secular terms, all right, we will typically say things like this. We'll say, well, I'm only free if there are no restrictions, or I'm only free when I can do whatever I want as long as I don't harm anyone else. And especially we say, I'm only free when I have maximum freedom to be true to myself, or I'm only free when I have maximum freedom to discover and to express my authentic self. So, for instance, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He's one of the most respected philosophers in the world. He's also a widely recognized expert in the advent and development of secular thought and culture over the last several hundred years, right? An expert in this. And he wrote a very important essay a number of years ago where he talks about this, this ideal of authenticity. What's this ideal of authenticity? Here's how Charles Taylor describes it. He says, The ideal of authenticity says that each one of us has an original way of being human. This idea has burrowed very deep into modern consciousness. It is a new idea. He says that before the 18th century, this was not an idea in our culture. He says, There is a certain way of being human that is my way. I am called to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's life. But this notion gives a new importance to being true to myself. If I am not true to myself, I miss the point of my life. If I'm not true to myself, I miss what being human is for me. So as Taylor says, this idea is deep in our modern consciousness. You see it everywhere in books, TV, newspapers, film, music. Um, I think especially one of the places we see it the most is in our animated children's films. So, you know, who is the patron saint, the, the, the modern heroine par excellence of the ideal of authenticity? Elsa from Frozen. Remember what she says in that song? It's, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. She's the modern-day saint, patron saint of this ideal of authenticity. You see, Elsa says, we say, I can only truly be free if there are no more restrictions, no more rules. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me who to be. Only I can determine that for myself. Now, there are a couple of things we need to say about that. And the first one is this. This idea is actually a tremendous affirmation of the unique dignity of every single human being. We have to recognize that, that there is a, a, a good notion and impulse at the very heart of this idea. It is affirming the unique worth and dignity of every single human being. Friends, do you realize that that, that idea only makes sense in a universe in which human beings are personal individuals with a unique worth and value? I want to tell you the only place you will find a universe like that is in the pages of the Bible. 
That's the only place you can find it. You do not find that that idea anywhere else. Atheism, for instance, will tell you that human beings are a cosmic accident. We We can invest them with worth and value, but they don't have inherent worth and value because human beings are a cosmic accident. Eastern views of the world, like Hinduism or Buddhism, will say that our sense of having a unique, personal, individual identity is actually a cosmic illusion. It's an illusion. That means that only the Christian worldview gives you a universe in which things like human rights and and human dignity actually make sense. And so that's the first thing we need to say about this. There's a great good at the heart of this view of the ideal of authenticity. But the second thing we need to say is this, and actually Paul says it in the passage, that when you go from affirming the importance of the individual, which is a good thing, to enthroning the individual, you've just moved from dignity to slavery. Why? Look at how Paul puts it in the passage. He says in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago. You notice how Paul says do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Think about this with me. Paul is warning the Galatians against Religious rule-keeping is a way of salvation, okay? So on the surface, this verse sounds like he's warning them not to go back to that. The problem is they never were religious rule-keepers to begin with. They were pagans. Now, paganism doesn't mean much in our culture, um, except as an insult. But paganism in the ancient world, it it was the religion of ancient Greece and Rome. And at the heart of paganism was a series of festivals at the heart of which there was a lot of food, uh, there was a lot of alcohol, and there was a lot of sex. That was paganism. In other words, they were modern-day Queen Elsas. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm going to live however I want. No rules. Cast off the rules. When Paul says, do not submit again, he's actually saying that living without any rules is just as enslaving as living by the rules. Because both of those things are a form of self-salvation, and therefore both of those things are ways of being alienated from God. Because if you say, well, God, I'm a good person. I try to live a holy life, a moral life, an obedient life, and therefore you owe me because on the basis of my performance, then you are enslaved. You are seeking to be your own, sl- your own savior, And you're a slave to the burden that you can't possibly do it. You you can't possibly bear the weight of that door as that kind of a hinge. But if you say, on the other hand, God, what God? There's no God to define me, no God to tell me who to be or what to do. I have to determine those things for myself. I have to be the creator and the definer of my own meaning and my own identity. If you say that, then you are just as much in bondage as any rule keeper. Why? Because not only do you have to live up to whatever identity it is you embrace for yourself, you now have the added burden of having to create that identity out of thin air. Listen, ancient people had a burden to live up to, their identity, you know, live up to this identity. But at least ancient people, society handed them their identity, their role, said, you will be a person of value and worth if you are a good son or a good mother or a good shoemaker or a good baker or whatever it is. Society handed your role to you and said, live up to the role. Live up to that identity. Modern people are the only people in the history of the world that not only have an identity that they have to live up to, but the responsibility of now creating that identity from scratch. 
Do you realize the kind of burden that that places on us as human beings? I mean, that's why Alain de Baton called his book Status Anxiety, because that creates tremendous anxiety in, in late modern culture. We live in a world where no matter how hard we try to be our own person and create our own meaning, you know how to, we live in a world where the ideals of wealth and beauty and romance and success and ethical performance are coming at us in a million different ways, in books and TVs and newspaper, um, in our Facebook and Instagram feeds. Look at how awesome everybody is. You know, just walking down the street, all of these images of what it means to be a person of worth and value are coming at us, and we are held captive to having to, to create an identity that can live up to those values. Dear ones, your longing for status and for justification, for love and meaning and worth and value, your longing for those things is real and it is good. It was woven into the fabric of your being by the God who created you. And the only place that you will find that God is in the pages of the Bible. If atheism is true or if Eastern views of the world are true, then that longing of yours really is nothing more than a cosmic joke. And the universe is having a laugh at your expense. But if that longing is real, guess what? The God of the Bible is real too. And he's calling you to forsake the slavery of being the hinge on which the whole door of your status turns. How are we going to do that? Actually, it leads to our last point. We've seen what gospel freedom is. It's freedom from performance-based status and liberation into grace-based status. We've seen how we miss it. You can be just as enslaved, just as lost without any rules as you can be by living by the rules. But lastly, how do we experience it? How do we actually find and experience this freedom that the gospel is offering to us? The key is to go back to this concept of circumcision. Because remember we said that the way Paul talks about circumcision, he says it's not just a ritual. It actually represents an operating principle that says that, um, that God's grace is not enough for your justification. You actually have to submit your resume to God for his approval. You have to turn in a great performance. That's an operating principle. Paul says that's not what circumcision actually originally meant. In fact, we get a hint of its original meaning in verse 4. Paul says that if you embrace circumcision, um, in other words, if you embrace the resume system as your operating principle, in verse 4 he says that you are severed from Christ. Now, when Paul says you are severed, he meant it literally. Another way of translating that would be you are cut off from Christ. And what he's doing is he's pointing to the, the physical reality of what circumcision really is, a physical cutting off of skin. Circumcision was a way originally of saying, I cut myself off from every other false god. I cut myself off from every other false object of devotion or false object of worship, and I devote myself entirely and exclusively to this God. It was a way of saying that, but circumcision was also a way of, of living out the covenant. We've talked about covenant before. A covenant is a promise of relationship, but it's a very legal binding promise of an intimate personal relationship. And one of the ways they enacted covenants in the ancient world was they would actually enact the penalties of what would happen to you if you failed to live up to your obligations in the covenant. So for instance, circumcision is a great example. Circumcision was a way of saying, if I fail to live up to my obligations in this relationship and this devotion to God, may I be cut off from God 
in the same way that this skin is cut off from the flesh. It was a way of enacting the penalty of disobedience. When we trust in our own personal goodness for the justification and the status we seek rather than trusting in God, or when we reject God entirely and, and say, I will be my own savior. I will be my own Lord. I will determine and define who I am and, and what I'm going to be. I will be the definer of my own identity and my own destiny. When we say that, eat both of those things, do you know what happens? Not only is it slavery to an impossible burden, it's relational cutoff with God. Because it's a way of saying to God, essentially, God, I don't trust you. God, I don't need you. I will be my own savior. I will be my own Lord. It's relational cutoff. You are severed from Christ, Paul says. Friends, the more we seek to be our own saviors, the more we seek the justification and the status that our hearts long for through our own efforts, ironically, the more we do that, the more we actually cut ourselves off from the very source of everything we're looking for. There's a place in C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, where um, he's talking about our deepest desire to be, as he says, noticed, by God, the deepest longing of our heart. He says, we all have, quote, a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. Interesting language. Uh, that, you know, our deepest longing is actually a reflection of our darkest fear to be eternally cut off from that to which we long to be eternally united. So he says in the essay that there's a place in the New Testament, it's actually the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus himself warns us that it may happen to any one of us to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you, depart from me. In some sense, C.S. Lewis says, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, he says we can be both banished from the presence of him who's present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. I can't think of anything more terrifying or more heartbreaking than that. But don't you know that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross? Because think about it, who is Jesus? I mean, he had ultimate status. He's the eternal son of God, the king of the universe, the very author of creation, the Bible tells us. He created everything. Talk about status. He had it. Not only that, when he came to earth, Jesus Christ took on human flesh and he lived a perfect life, a life of perfect goodness. I mean, Jesus didn't just turn in a good performance. He turned in a, a crazy good performance. But on the cross, Jesus turned in the ultimate performance because on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our lousy performance because on the cross, Jesus was cut off from the Father. He was severed from God. The, the, the very being whose signature is on the document of creation, he was erased. Why? He was cut off. He was severed so that we could be reunited, so that we could be reconciled with God, so that... So that we could hear that voice we've been longing to hear all of our lives so that we could hear the voice that says, you are my beloved child, you are my precious treasure, in you I am well pleased. We all long to hear that. And friends, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, but you're thinking about it, 
My, my simple encouragement to you this morning is this. Pay attention to that longing. It's there for a reason. It's there. That longing is actually there because the God who created you actually wove that longing into the very fabric of your being. Pay attention to it because you won't find it anywhere else. Every single day, that longing is present in your life. And it only makes sense in a radically personal universe, personal universe that was created by a radically personal God. Atheism can't give that to you. Eastern views of the world cannot give that to you. The only place you will find that is in a personal universe created by a personal God. In other words, take that longing, pay attention to it, and take it to God and say, God, I don't even know if you do exist. But I find in myself a longing that doesn't even make sense unless you do exist. And I forsake now and ask you to help me to forsake all the ways that I'm trying to fulfill that longing without you. And I ask you now, help me to see how Jesus was actually cut off from you so that I could be reunited to you. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, Paul has one basic word of encouragement and application for us. Stand firm. <laughs> Stand firm in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. In other words, every single day of your life is filled with all kinds of opportunities to forget the gospel because every single day of our life, we walk through this world bombarded by images and cultural narratives and all kinds of things that would help us to look like really, really good things like wealth and success and romance and beauty and ethical performance to look at those things as good as they are and say, all of the status that I seek is in those things instead of seeing those things as things that actually tell us about the status we seek in God. Stand firm against all the cultural narratives that would woo you to the operating principle of performance-based status. The cultural narratives are just like the gospels that were preached by the false teachers, not the opposite of the gospel, but so dangerously close with that 1% that was just a little bit different because there's so much that's so good in, in so many of our cultural narratives. They, those cultural narratives actually spring out of the soil of a Christian worldview, but they've been twisted a little bit, and, and we have to stand firm in order to recognize that 1% that's tempting us to think that the status that we seek is actually to be found in our performance rather than in God's grace. We have to stand firm against that because it is so easy to get sucked back into it, to live a performance-based life. Friends, the way we do that is simple. It's not rocket science. You know, it's reading and meditating on Scripture. It's being in community with other Christians to encourage us in the gospel and the freedom of the gospel. It's, it's things like worship and singing and prayer and all the kinds of things we do together as a Christian community. But that's how we stand firm, by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. That's the only way, and it's the simplest way. Friends, the only way you can be free from the burden of having to be the hinge on which all of your justification and status turns. The only way you can do that is to fill your heart and your mind with the one who turned in the ultimate performance for you. As the old, uh, old hymn says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you offer us, a freedom that is only hinted at 
in the most precious narratives that we have in our culture, but that is only and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. We ask even this morning that you would help us to embrace the freedom that you offer us. It is the ultimate fulfillment of everything our hearts are looking for, and we pray that you'd help us to embrace it anew this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.